0: So Jesus levels this indictment that is long overdue to these religious leaders. They're guilty of bibliolatry. They worship the print on the page, but they never saw his form. They never heard his voice. They were searching the scriptures, but they missed the Christ who is there from Genesis to Malachi. Their problem was not a problem of orthodoxy. It was a problem of orthopraxy because they were unwilling to apply the
1: truth that they learned. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Fourfold Witness of Christ. We have just completed a look at the incredible claim by Jesus Christ that He and God the Father are one. As we continue our study in John chapter 5 today, we begin to look at the fourfold witness that confirms that claim. Let's join Pastor Carl now, as he looks at how Jesus proved that he was God.
0: Take your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 5. John 5, it's one of the most important chapters in all the Bible in defending the deity of Jesus Christ. If you're a college student and you're defending the faith against some skeptical professor who said that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God, well... If you can understand John 5, you'll be able to stand your ground. Or if you're dealing with some cultist who shows up at your door, some Unitarian, or somebody from the Unity Movement, or Christian Science, or Mormonism, or Jehovah's Witness, you'll be able to defend the faith rightly. If you know John chapter 5, or maybe you're dealing with some earnestly searching person who really wants to know what Jesus Christ claimed about Himself, then John 5 will be of great help to you. You know, if I were preaching the highlights of the gospel of john i just skipped this passage it's a a difficult passage it really is not the milk of the word word it's the meat of the word john writes with such simple simple language but such profound thoughts are communicated through his pen by the holy spirit who inspired him so we need to learn this this is an important passage you need to pay attention this morning take notes Use the bulletin there, the back of it, where you have a note-taking outline. But let's begin by reading our text of Scripture. We want to start in verse 30 of chapter 5, where we left off last time. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For, you, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now let's just take a moment and remind ourselves of the context of these verses. If you remember, the chapter opens with a profound miracle that Jesus Christ does. A man there at the pool of Bethesda who'd been crippled for 38 years, paralyzed in his limbs. Jesus speaks to him and instantly is healed and he gets up and he walks. Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath. And so because he does a form of what they consider to be work, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath and they accuse him... A blasphemy, because he equated himself with God. And so we read in verse 18, For this cause, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Oh, to break the Sabbath by doing work on it, as they thought he did by healing, that was an evil thing in their minds. To ask someone else to do work on the Sabbath by asking him to pick up his pallet and to walk, carrying a pallet being carrying a a burden of sorts, that was even worse. But worst of all was to make yourself equal with God. Now, if you remember the Old Testament, for 70 years, the Jews had been carried away into Babylon. And if the Jews had learned anything at all from that time of discipline, they learned that God was totally different from man and that God absolutely detested idolatry. Before they were deported, God sent a prophet and one like Isaiah and Isaiah spoke by the word of the Lord, to whom will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equals, says the Holy One. To equate yourself with God was to invite the judgment of God. And five people, five men in the Bible claimed equality with God and they were immediately extinguished by the Lord. So these Jews understood Christ's claim, his claim to be equal to the Father. They said it. They said, you are claiming equality with God. That's blasphemy. And so the official persecution of the Lord Jesus Christ begins with this miracle leading all the way to Golgotha. And so, as we studied last time, instead of denying that he is God, he goes on and he defends it. And he makes claims that only God can make. And he takes actions that only God can take. He makes three claims That only God can make. He claims to be equal with God in nature. Equal with God in in power. And equal with God in authority. And then he claims to be able to take action that only God can take. He says that the power of life is in his hands. The power of judgment is in his hands. And the power of the resurrection is in his hands. And so he gives six proofs as it were for his own deity. Now listen, today if a man... Claim to be almighty God, you would say he was either joking or he's off his rocker that he was nuts. And so you have to decide, as that third century apologist said, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Is he deceived? Is he a deceiver? Or is he deity? Again, in the words of C.S. Lewis, in the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply What I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any character in history. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. So he does a miracle on the Sabbath. They accuse him of working. They accuse him of blasphemy. That's scene one. He defends the accusation that they throw against him by giving six proofs for his deity. That's seen too. If that were not enough, now he calls four witnesses to the stand to defend the claims that he has just made. So I want you to imagine this morning that you're on the jury and in your hand is a ballot. The one defending himself is the Lord Jesus He's calling witnesses to the stand. Witnesses who are saying whether or not he is the Lord God. So follow closely this morning. He's serving as his own attorney. He begins in verse 30 by saying, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Now, up until this time, he has spoken in the third person. He says the son or the son of man. But now he goes to the first person to really bring home in a hammer home, his claims. I can do nothing of my own initiative. Why? Because the Son of God has become the Son of man. Jesus Christ, in emptying himself, did not give up any of his deity, but he humbled himself by becoming a man, and he chose to live in dependence upon the Father. It's really an amazing statement if you think about it. I can do nothing of my own initiative. It's an amazing statement because as God, he would not have to obey. For whom does God obey? God obeys no one. But the Son of God in becoming the Son of Man submitted to the leadership of God the Father. And he did something that God had never done before. The Bible says in Hebrews 5, 8, he learned obedience. Obedience. How can the omniscient God learn obedience? Because he was willing to lay aside the exercise of those divine attributes unless the Father showed him at different points to specifically use them. And he learned obedience. And so he makes a statement, I don't do anything of my own initiative, just what the Father tells me. And so for you to accuse me of breaking the Sabbath... You're accusing my father of breaking the Sabbath, too. That's his argument. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Conceivably, the only one who can hear what the Father says is God himself. Oh, you see these nuts on TV. Oh, wait a minute, let me see what God's saying. Oh, yeah, God is, you know, send me a $1,000 or whatever. No. Only the Lord God has this kind of intimacy, the father with the son. And so he says, my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me, just as the father's judgment is flawless, so the son's judgment is flawless. He takes on, as we saw last time, an activity that only God can do. Only God is all-knowing. Only God knows everything about you. Only God knows every law and every dimension of it so that he can perfectly judge Again, we saw that he has explained the Father. That's what John 1.18 says. Literally, he exegeted the Father. He set him forth before us. He showed us what the Father is like so that to see him is to see the Father. But then he adds in verse 31, interestingly, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. Now, it's very important we understand what Jesus meant by this. this He's not saying that the things that he has said are somehow false. When he says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. This is a a colloquialism, a Hebraism of sorts. If you happen to have the New American Standard in front of you with footnotes, you'll see that often when there's a Hebraism, an enigmatic statement from the Old or New Testament, still footnoted. And right before that word true, you'll see a little one, you see it there, and you go out into the margin, and it says, It's not admissible as legal evidence. That's the thought here. If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not admissible as legal evidence. The key, really, to understanding the verse, I have it circled in my Bible, is the word alone. He's saying, For me, all by myself, to make this claim that I am God before you is not enough. Why is that? Well, if I stood in this pulpit this morning and I said I'm God, you'd say prove it to me. Prove to me that you are God. Well, I couldn't prove it, obviously. But understand what Jesus is doing. Obviously, he could have just said it since he is God, but they didn't accept him as God at this point. And so, like a courtroom attorney, he is going to marshal some evidence, some testimony, to show that he is the Lord God. Right out next to verse thirty-one, would you Deuteronomy seventeen and verse six? It says, "On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." Capital punishment taught in both testaments is not allowed on the basis of one witness. He needed two or three witnesses. In like fashion, you might jot Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not rise up against the man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. By the way, Paul quotes this in 1 Timothy 5.19, or he references it, not a direct quote, but he said, listen, if someone alleges a pastor or an elder has done such and such, don't believe it unless there's two or three witnesses. Don't go by the testimony of one person. You can see why he might make such a statement. And so one witness was not enough. If I'm the only one who bears witness of myself, my testimony is not permissible as legal evidence. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed. So Jesus Christ calls witnesses to the stand to testify on his behalf. The first witness that he calls is really, in essence, the Father's word. Consider first the testimony of the Father's word. Now imagine yourself again. You're the juror. You're listening to the evidence as it's presented. Look at verse 32. Jesus said, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. There's another who bears witness, another other than myself. Now, it's interesting, in the Greek New Testament, there are two words for another. There's the word another, heteros, so it means another of a different kind, and then there's the word another, alas, another of the same kind. Well, people say he spoke Aramaic. Listen, I can speak English when I use the word love, You know whether I'm using it to refer to romantic love or brotherly love. Context determines it. Well, the writers of the New Testament, as they were inspired by God without any mistakes, they would, by the Spirit of God, take even the nuances of Aramaic, though there are not two distinct words for another in that language, and what Christ was saying came through. Now, they knew what he was saying. If I asked you today... For a heteros biblios. You know the word heteros, it comes directly into English. We speak of a heterosexual or heterodoxy, um, another of a different kind. If I ask you for a heteros biblios, you could give me any book. You could give me a book on running, on science, on geography, anything you wanted. But if I ask you for an alos biblios, You'd have to give me another Bible, another one exactly like this. That's the word our Lord uses here. There is another just like me who bears witness. And it's an ongoing tense who continually bears witness of me. Think about the father, how he continually bore witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. His departure from heaven was predicted by all of the Old Testament prophets. A child will be born unto us, and this child's name will be called Mighty God. A baby is coming, and the baby's name is Mighty God. The prophets foretold of his departure from heaven. His conception was announced. God the Father sent the angel Gabriel to Mary. He sent an unnamed angel to Joseph. And he said, the offspring of the womb is conceived by the Spirit of God. It's a virgin conception. Within your womb is God made man. His conception was announced. His Earth Day, I I was going to say his birthday, but I thought, well, birthday communicates a start, but there was never a time when Christ was not. But his Earth Day, his coming as God in human flesh was announced by angels and a miraculous star that heralded his coming. At his baptism, the father continued to testify. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, the father again reaffirmed the testimony of Christ. Christ is being true. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the father bore witness over and over and over again, even at Pentecost, as he sent the spirit of Christ within our hearts, the father who's called the ancient of days, we sang about it in Daniel chapter seven, speaking of his eternality, he Predicted that he will come again on the clouds in glory and the father will finally bear witness when he will ask, when he will make, when he will demand every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that he is Lord. So the father who sent me has borne witness of me. And then he says something that seems absolutely incredible. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor see his form. Now, how can that be? Listen, don't forget, who's he speaking to? The Pharisees, the Jews. And they were supposed to be the experts in the law. These were folks who prayed three times a day. They went to temple every day. They gave a tithe of all that they learned. They lectured continually on the scriptures. But the Lord says, you haven't heard his voice nor seen his form. They were people who trafficked in the truth, but they are unchanged by the truth. Their rites, their rituals, their feasts, their fasts, their sacrifices, their Sabbaths didn't change them. Now, some of you I've seen nodding your head because you know what I'm talking about. There are people just like that today. You can come to a church like this, you wouldn't think of missing the Lord's Day and breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You wouldn't think about not spending time in God's Word. But you can traffic in the truth and not be changed by it. There's a lot of people like that. In my 25 plus years of ministry, I've led three pastors to Christ. Three men who were in the ministry, but who were lost. Who never met the Lord. So Jesus levels this indictment that is long overdue to these religious leaders. They're guilty of bibliolatry. They worship the print on the page, but they never saw his form. They never heard his voice. They were searching the scriptures, but they missed the Christ who is there from Genesis to Malachi. Their problem was not a problem of orthodoxy. It was a problem of orthopraxy because they were unwilling to apply the truth that they learned. And that's why he will say in verse 38, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. These were men who didn't let it go from their head to their heart. They didn't let the word of God generate faith because they had become proud. They did not believe him whom he sent. So it gives the father's testimony. He, He hits on it again a little bit later here. But then he calls a second one to testify to the stand. John the Baptist, consider the testimony of the forerunner's witness. This is the testimony of the Father's word, now the testimony of the forerunner's witness. Look at verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. The second witness is John the Baptist. Now, what's he talking about you have sent to John? Hold your finger here. Go to John 1 for just a second. We studied it many weeks ago. Look at John 1. Turn back a few pages. Verse 19. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to him, who are you that we may give an answer? to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So Jesus said, listen, you have sent to John. You sent that delegation of Levites and priests. They came to you and they said, who are you, John? Tell us. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Well, tell us who you are so we give an answer to those Pharisees who sent us. If you remember, John said in that chapter, I'm a lamp, I'm a light, I'm a voice. That's all I am. John, who knew the Lord Jesus Christ, faithfully declared him to Israel. He says in that first chapter, he is the Lord. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. John bore witness to the truth. He is born witness. Notice it's a past tense. Why is it a past tense? Well, as you study the synoptic Gospels, you discover that John has already been in prison. Probably we're not sure it's in the time frame. Probably already had his head cut off by now. So his, his, his service is over. But then he adds in verse 34, but the witness which I receive is not from man. As important as John the Baptist's ministry was. Jesus recognized he didn't really have a need for human testimony to validate his claims. Since God the Father already testifies on his behalf, as he just argued, how can John the Baptist add to that? He can't. How can anybody add to what the Father says? But he says, I say these things that you may be saved. I'm taking you back to John the Baptist That you might consider what he said, that you might be saved. Now, who's he speaking to? Pharisees. Men who hated him, who despised him, who ultimately were involved in his very crucifixion. But Jesus loved them, he cared about them, he wanted them to be saved. Isn't that amazing? And some of them, when you come to Acts 15, they find the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. John, verse 35, he was the lamp that was burning and was shining. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The old King James calls him a light. The new King James, like the NAS, a lamp. And rightly so, because it's two distinctly Greek words. Jesus is the light. John is a little lamp. Christ is the light. John is a lamp that points men to the light. And he's called here a burning and shining lamp. What a tremendous epithet to put on someone's tombstone. He was a burning and shining light for Christ. Isn't that cool? He pointed men to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you guys were happy to rejoice in his light for a while. The Greek text literally says, for an hour. Now, it is true that some responded to the ministry of John. Christ's disciples, as we studied in John 1, were originally disciples of John the Baptist. It was in that context that the Lord called them. And many of the people, the prostitutes, the tax gatherers, the rip-off artists, the immoral soldiers, uh, they responded to the message because they knew they were sinners, but the religious leaders of many of the Jewish people, oh, they only rejoice in his light for an hour, for a short time. They like the message, Messiah is coming. Oh, tremendous. We want him. But they just rejoice in his light for a short time. Understand, often God raises up a spiritual leader. And the danger is that people will give their attention to that spiritual leader because of his popularity. But when he begins to preach a message where they are called to submit to his authority, then it's another story. Moses spoke of a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt. The prophets and the apostles and the great leaders in church history had to put up with people who bathed in their popularity but refused to submit to their authority. And we have the same in the church today. Oh, he preached Jesus is Messiah. They bathed in his light for a while. But then when he introduced him as the Lamb of God, they didn't like that message. That didn't work for them. They wanted somebody who would crush Rome, who would make them a superpower again. And so they discounted his miracles, they disbelieved his message, they denied his ministry, they despised all of his methods, and they discounted the ministry of John.
1: If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 014. Every word that Pastor Carl preached today was from the Bible, second timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says that all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching reproof for correction and for training in righteousness have you ever wondered how you can prove the bible to be true well in dr brogi's book how to prove the bible is true pastor carl examines five crucial evidences that prove that the bible is the word of god And we'll share how you can definitively and accurately convey these truths to others. With a donation of any amount, you can receive a copy of How to Prove the Bible is True. Just call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.